Hey there, boys and girls. Welcome to another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. We're going to talk injuries today. Really wanted to have this guest for this week and what's going on in the NFL and specifically the situation with Tyrod Taylor and the Chargers. No better guests than my friend, Dr. David Chow. David is the former doc of the aforementioned Chargers, then San Diego, where he still is, and now LA, of course, and involved with a lot of other sports organizations. He's got profootballdoc.com, profootballdoc on Twitter, kind of a go-to guy for injuries, and we're going to talk globally about injuries, but we'll start with Tyrod. But first, David, welcome to the podcast. I am always interested in medical things, never get to it as a full issue on the podcast, but here we are. Well, it's probably good that you don't get to it as a full issue, right? I mean, uh, you kind of don't want to hear about medical, and then when you do, it's usually bad news. So it's not <laughs> it's not a fun uh, topic. But I'm honored to, that uh, you asked me to come on. Yeah, uh, I've been a big fan of yours. And, and as you know, kind of in some ways followed in your footsteps in a weird way, right? I mean, obviously, right. I, I fell into this through National Football Post. A, an outfit that you started, right? And um, and and essentially, it's the it's the ex, right? The ex front office guy. You, I'm the ex doctor. So, I've often described what I do as the medical Mike Pereira, but it might be the front office Andrew Brandt might be the <laughs> the medical Andrew Brandt. You know, whatever. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting history that people don't know. Even knowing me from ESPN or or Ross Tucker or Sports Illustrated or TV. Uh, started my media when I left the Packers with what you just mentioned, National Football Post, put together by some insiders that we just said, no one's doing this. No one's sort of bringing us behind the scenes. It's just standard media. And that group had your your local mate, uh, Jack Vecta, agent out in La Jolla, Mike Lombardi, Matt Bowen, Joe Fortenbaugh, and myself, and we've all moved on to maybe not bigger but better things not better but you know it was, it was quite a time and yeah. uh, you jogged my memory you were part of that way back in the day it's uh it was quite a way to transition from inside to to outside well i got i got agent okie doked on that so i finished up with the chargers and jack kept hounding me do something write something and i was like ah, i'm not a media guy and I said, was, I said, I'll tell you what, why don't your guys ask me some questions and I'll just answer them. And yeah. so I said, here, here are like five questions that you should ask me and here would be my answers. And he took that and turned it into an article or a column and he said, do it again. And so, <laughs> I mean, I wasn't comfortable writing, but he okey-doked me into it by, you know, doing this pseudo question and answer thing. You know, it's interesting. My, my decade with the Packers uh, I had and still have no closer friend there than Dr. Pat McKenzie, mm -hmm. uh, team doc. And we obviously were both runners. We'd go to our, our game in Minnesota or Dallas or Detroit or whatever. We'd throw our bags in a room and we'd run and for hours. He was a long distance runner. And we'd exchange so many stories about our team and the, and the injuries. And I sometimes people ask me what, just sort of tell me one thing about being running an NFL team that people don't know. And one of the answers I give, and you know this better than anyone, is the amount of time front office spends on medical. People don't realize that. Like meeting with the doc every day. Who can be up? Who can be down? How long? How long? What, do we bring in this guy? 
What about draft? What about scouting? How much medical goes into scouting? People have no idea. They think it's all just football and you don't, you know, the doctors kind of. Well, for, have, for, for me, what I say is everyone sees what we do on Sunday. Yeah. And I'm like, that's a very, very small part yeah. of the whole thing. It's a year long process, obviously combines and free agent stuff and maintaining guys. And it's a week long process in season. It's not just about game day. I would argue the two most important day, you know, is is entry and exit physicals are probably the two most important yeah. days for a team physician. Not Sunday, not that playoff game, although that's important. But yeah. there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff. You know, it's interesting because when I talked about Pat McKenzie, who's still with the Packers, doing a great job. Uh, <laughs> we, We'd come back on some plane ride at three in the morning from some game and he'd have to be in the office at seven to see patients. <laughs> He's whining, you know this. And I'm like, Hey dude, you don't have to be here. You know, like <laughs> I gotta be here. This is my job. <laughs> like you got a real job. You don't have to be here. So I'm, I sort of lead that into the question for you is why be an NFL team doc? Because I'm assuming, as everyone is, you get so much benefit beyond the pay from the team in prestige and other people seeing you. And then, of course, what got you into it, David? Good question. Um, first of all, I respect Pat McKenzie. He's one <laughs> of the really good ones. You know, no surprise. And, um, yeah, and you're right about what a lot of people don't know is this is not – team physicians – it may seem like a full-time job. It is not a full-time job. Every physician in the NFL has their own practice outside of the team. And that's hard for people to, to understand. And like Dr. McKenzie, look, whenever we leave on a three-day road trip, you know, players would bet on the last person on the bus. And I would be always kind of a favorite because I would be coming from clinic or surgery and running right onto the bus last minute kind of deal. And you're right, right back to it. And one advantage of that is you got some of the fun and the highs, but I'll tell you, it's no fun when you lose, right? And there's a losing streak. And I actually could escape after the Monday injury check away from the team. Right. Drums, right. And so you're right about that. I may not get as high the highs, but you don't get the lows. As far as my being a team physician, I did it because well, first of all, I was lucky to get the opportunity. And, um, you know, one thing that you may or may not know is, I don't know that they keep official stats on this, Andrew, but I probably was the youngest head team physician ever that I know of. And for the first eight years of the 17 with the San Diego Chargers, there was at least one player on the team older than me. Hmm. And it made me falsely think that I was in a peer group, right? Yeah. And so it wasn't doctor, old guy, patient. It was like, I'm with friends. Mm -hmm. I want to take care of friends. And so it didn't seem like work. Like you're always out to help friends. And it didn't seem like work. Then in the last nine years, like nobody was older than me. But <laughs> all these guys still felt like my little brothers. For example, yesterday... I mean, it just hit today. Sean Merriman, you know, texted me, hey, jump on my pod. Danny Woodhead, jump on my pod. You know, Philip Rivers called me yesterday um, and um, et cetera. So 
they're, they were friends and it made it very special. So I feel like I had a very unique experience in the NFL. I mean, most times you get the job when you're very successful and you're 50 and et cetera. And, and you're so busy that you don't know what to do with it. I was lucky to get it the other way. I feel like I did life backwards because now I got married late in life. Now I got little kids, <laughs> but I'm loving the way, right? You choose the other way around, you know, in your thirties, you get married and you have little kids in your fifties, you kind of get this yeah. prestigious job. I kind of did it the other way around. And I freely would admit, I, you know, I worked some with the bears. I worked some with the Vikings, not as the lead. I was an assistant. So joined a practice. I was an assistant with the chargers. There was a mid season change and there's no doubt in my mind I was interim, right? I mean, right? I mean, that's what happens. Right. And, uh, but I was lucky enough to be in that position, but hopefully skillful enough to convert the job because I don't think they were looking to hire a young doctor like that. But, you know, I was lucky to be in a position and, and, and I enjoyed it. So it didn't seem like work to me. So it was fun to dedicate time and energy and to the whole thing. And you mentioned those players that you still are close to, like Woodhead and Philip Rivers and Merriman. You were also close with, with Junior Seau, and I know that ended tragically, obviously, for him. And maybe you want to share sort of what happened in some accusations you faced regarding Junior and, and how kind of that affected you, because I know you guys had a good relationship. Well, you know, thanks for asking. And and if you would have asked me a few years ago, I probably would have taken a pass on the question just because it's such a, a sore subject yeah. here. Um, my, put it this way, I have boy-girl twins that are now seven, Dylan and Davis Chow. And my, my initials, David J. Chow. My wife wanted to name the kids similar initials. So it's Dylan Juliet Chow. And it's Davis Jr. Chow. I'm David. He's Davis. He's not really a junior. It's after Junior Seau. Oh, wow. Uh, my, wife, my wife was pregnant when Junior passed away. Um, and uh, so he never met them. But you're getting a lot out of me here, Andrew. I wasn't prepared to do this. But Junior was a good enough friend that, as a matter of fact, he was the officiant at my wedding. Uh, and best man at my wedding. Um, I'm not saying I was his best friend or whatever. I'm just saying it was a very special relationship and tragic. And so, you know, when there's political things that come up and, oh my gosh, you prescribed Ambien. Look, the coroner said it didn't have anything to do with the death. Did I make the mistake of prescribing limited quantities of Ambien uh, and not always seen him in the office and charting it. Yeah, that's an administrative thing. I mean, he was a guy I saw all the time and I monitored all the time. Right. Um, so I'm very confident in my care of him. I mean, I was a pallbearer in his funeral, but it's hurtful when he's one of your best friends and, you know, and people make these silly accusations, etc. But, you know, the letter of the rule is you're supposed to document every encounter with a patient, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm not shirking that, but you can see how 
when you're close and, and you know, uh, you also have to understand that, and kudos to Junior's family, they are the ones who insisted on finding out about the CTE right. and seeking out the best place. And quite honestly, we had a meeting in my dining room of all the kids and the executor about how to do that. And I advised them on how to do that. And if you think back, the seminal moment in some ways for CTE and Junior's family should be proud of this is that because they sent it to the National Institute of Health and it wasn't this competing group or this competing group and they sent it to multiple centers and that was their thought. They wanted to be certain what the deal is. It really was the first seminal case that scientists couldn't dispute because all the other ones went to one center and the data wasn't necessarily shared or another center. And it sort of advanced what was going on. So, you know, in retrospect, you say, well, of course, you know, potentially Junior had CTE, but I don't know that we knew that when he passed away per se, but you're obviously good at what you're doing because I trust you, you got me to open up quite a bit on some no, stories. I really appreciate that. And I remember that situation very well. I really appreciate you opening up and being so candid and honest about that. And, you know, I remember doing some outside the lines reports on, on ESPN. Uh, I had Chris Nowinski on this podcast uh, again, one of those kind of groups. I respect Chris a lot, kind of competing for the brains as happened back then. And you're right. That was a seminal moment for discovery of this terrible illness that was afflicting a lot of players that were getting towards end of life and taking their lives. Um, and, and, and Andrew, the reason why it's not just Junior, though, yeah. Junior wasn't the first, but there was a streak there where, look, I've done several different sports things and involved in a lot of different sports. And uh, there was a streak there where, um, thankfully, it stopped or slowed down or stopped right now across six years where I had five of my better friends have CT and pass mm -hmm. away. They weren't all football players. There were some other sports, action sports and what have you. But yeah, so it's a big personal deal to me. And, um, you know, uh, you know, yeah, and you're right. There was a competition for the brain, I mean, which is, yeah. you know, kind of morbid. And, and I was sort of involved in a little bit of the competition for the, not me competing, but people were coming to me to try and influence me to, uh, to influence the families. You know, I want to get, get to all these issues. And of course, Tyrod, but we just happened upon this issue, and I, and I guess I want your take. And yeah. the, issue, the issue, of course, is concussions. And mm -hmm. you know, we have we are not in the bygone era depicted in the the documentaries and the movie with Will Smith concussion and the MTBI headed by a rheumatologist, New York Jets physician. We're long past that. But as you've been through these eras. And again, I was with the Packers during a different era. Do you really see a much safer product and have less worry about long-term brain trauma now? Or do you see it as just an assumed risk of playing this sport? 
Well, you ask very good questions, Andrew, very intelligent questions. And whenever there's a tough question like that, the answer is probably somewhere in the middle, right? Um, do I think that CTE is this unbelievable, unavoidable issue for every athlete that gets a concussion and rose the level of some of this hysteria is a strong word, but you know, it, it, it really get snowballed. No. Do I believe it's real? A thousand percent. Look at the five people I just would talked about. And we don't know right now what really causes the CTE. We see the association with concussions and I suspect one day we'll find out a lot more. Is there a genetic factor? I mean, the analogy I'll give is a simple one. First of all, we call all concussions the same. And it's like back in the day when we didn't have an MRI and we called it a trick knee. We didn't know the difference between an ACL and a meniscus tear. So we called everything a knee sprain. Well, nowadays we call basically everything a concussion, right? I mean, we need to get to an era where this is a grade two temporal lobe concussion, a grade three B occipital lobe concussion. And some of the treatments may indeed be different and some may be more dangerous. And as far as the genetic factors, let me use another tragedy as an example. Corey Stringer. Yeah. Passing away from heat stroke, so to speak. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, it wasn't exactly heat stroke, but, you know, heat, the, the heat illness. Tragic. I mean, it was hot that day. And Corey's one of the bigger guys. And it's harder to escape heat and the whole deal. But it's not like there were 15 Vikings hospitalized, five that went into the ICU, and Corey Stringer died. Everyone else was hot. Everyone else was tired. But everyone else drank water and this, that, the other, and were fine. So what was the switch in Corey? I don't know. But there had to be something genetic and different. What was the switch in Junior or some of these other people where yeah. others seem more – we're in our infancy still on it. There's way more we don't know, and I hope we learn a lot more. And full disclosure, in the end, I know a lot about this because the NFL tried to address it, but I'm an orthopedic surgeon. Like right. I didn't even evaluate the concussions on the players on our own team. I sort of supervised, but I didn't do any of the evaluations. I'll let the primary care guys and the neuro guys and the independent neuro guy tell me what they said. And I would relay it and enforce their thoughts to the rest of the team and to the player. And I think that's been a big change too, because yeah, in, even in my day, we would, yeah, Dr. McKenzie would diagnose or we'd have our internist, Dr. Gray, but we'd have a, a neuro guy down in, in our case in Appleton, Wisconsin, but as things change, as you know, they're on the bench. I mean, now everyone's on the sideline, the unaffiliated neuro doc. Yeah. Everyone's but, 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 but we got a lot, still got a ways to go here, Andrew. I mean, yeah. in some small way, I felt like I've helped a tiny bit. I've been lucky enough to go to Super Bowls and get credentialed and had my binoculars on Julian Edelman in the Super Bowl in Arizona where if you remember, he was a little slow getting up and the yeah. eye was calling down to say, get him checked. And uh, I could see that on Twitter and hear that, but my binoculars 
play never stopped and there was controversy that the Patriots didn't do something right. Well, I saw the athletic trainer and doctor get up to the sideline. I saw that they were trying to come in, but there was no timeout and no stoppage of play. And as a result of that, there's almost the quote Edelman rule, the medical timeout, oh, you know, yeah. right? That came out of that. And that's a good step. Another one I'll bring up, I actually wrote an article, but somehow with all the different things, it got lost. On Sunday, go back and look at the tape. Justin Herbert runs to the Chargers sideline. A big collision with linebacker Damian Wilson. Damian Wilson clearly goes limp to me. Clearly postures with his arms. And literally falls into the lap of one of the Chargers medical personnel. Chargers help him up you know, tend to him until the Chiefs personnel can get across the field. And I put out on Twitter, well, there's no way he's coming back into this game. Right. But he did. He did. And here's the difference. Afterwards. Here's the difference. And I'm not saying anything one did anything wrong, and it's hard to judge by thing, but in years past, Andrew, there would have been social media uproar over that. Yeah. But because COVID is the number one medical topic. I didn't really see any social media over that or outrage over that. So one of the things that you're giving me a chance to do is lobby for diligence on the concussion CT issue issue. Not that the chiefs didn't do things that were right. They ran across the field and clearly they didn't see any of the stuff immediately like that. And he was cleared by the independent Nero on the sideline who, by the way, lives in Los Angeles does not travel with the Chiefs. So to say that he was cheating for them is ridiculous. Obviously, they saw enough that they let him back in the game. And I'm not saying they did the wrong thing. I'm just saying in years past, that would have been a social media uproar. And we never even heard about it. Yeah, so where social media drives so much. And you're right. COVID's everything. The fact they're even playing and the no fans and social justice and I rem- it was this time of year, like this first or second game, was it a couple years ago, where Cam Newton was just getting pummeled by, I think, the Broncos. I don't know. It was an early game and just just shots right and left. And everyone was, and then he tried to come off and he waved off the docks or the trainers. And you're right. There was the outrage. Uh, We've seen it for years. And I was really surprised you didn't see it at all. I mean, you know. Yeah. Of course, and, and then it, but you're right. The the pendulum swings, and I now remember that Damian Wilson hit on Justin Herbert, and it was kind of, if I'm remembering this right, the Twitter commentary, and again, it may have just been a couple of people, was like, "Wow, Herbert's really tough." Right. You know, like Herbert's a monster. Look at it. Herbert's a stud. Instead of look at this poor guy. Right and and right and and I and uh, I put out there. Look, I always say you can't judge concussions by video. Yeah, uh, like a huge you got jacked hit, and a guy might be fine, and a little tiny right. tap on the back of the head, and they're concussed. You, you can't tell, but it's an NFL rule if you see visual signs of concussions, whether it's stumbling or you know uh, posturing or going limp. You're supposed to be out. Look, they checked him out and they put him back in. That's not my point. I'm not questioning what the doctors did on the sideline. It's just 
our reaction to the world. It's, you know, things keep changing and evolving. There's more, uh, I've seen a lot more about uh, why are you finding coaches for masks yeah. when they test everyone and they're negative than I do anything related to that. So you bring up concussions. It's the other side is the concussion issue hasn't gone away. Of course. I mean, you know, and, and is it better? Yes. Is it solved? No. Right. They're trying still. And right. I think it's better, but it's not solved. And the, and in the end, I tell everyone, and I think you'll agree with this football is n anytime anyone says football is a contact sport, I correct them and I disagree. Football is a collision sport. Basketball is a contact sport. Football is a collision sport. Believe me, I know I've seen the triage in those rooms that you've been in. <laughs> um, okay, so you brought up the Chargers game, and so here we go. And I know you've been talking about this nonstop since Sunday. <laughs> uh, Tyrod Taylor, and I've, and I've been talking about sort of the, the issues of contracts and damages and what could happen, and I'll obviously deal with that in my uh, run-up to our interview. But I think that my question to you is a lot of things. We start out with a injection. And I think a lot of people, this is one of those things where like pain-killing injection in the ribs doesn't seem to raise a lot of eyebrows. And it becomes like, oh, yeah, he took a shot to play to numb it up. But there was a complication. And my layman's terms, which I want you to sort of get more in the woods, in the, in the weeds, punctured lung. And people see, people hear punctured lung, they think the guy's on a respirator, they think he can't breathe, they think he's lying, you know, he's gone, uh, like he's yeah. going to be a year. So what you've heard about what happened, your reaction and your, your, your expert insight as to how rare long-term damage, and of course, what you can veer into my lane about potential liability. Sure, and, and you know, that's, you know, you'll probably talk for an hour on that, but I'll <laughs> limit what's going on here. The first thing is, it wasn't the fact pattern fit, and that's why on Monday, I did my podcast in Periscope, and I sort of walked people through why I thought this is what happened. And I deal in insider knowledge, yeah. not insider information. Look, I know the guys at the Chargers. I could pick up the phone and say, what happened? A, I wouldn't do that. B, even if I did, they wouldn't tell me because of HIPAA. And C, if they told me, I wouldn't be able to tell the world anymore. So from my analysis, I said, this is what happened. Because how do you leave pregame fine and then have something happen? And you could see him uncomfortable, they're breathing in chest and he had the history of the rib on Friday, and a 31-year-old isn't having a heart attack on the sidelines. And you put it all together, and you say, this is what it is. That's why I Monday's thing was a hypothesis. And actually, Monday, um, the some NFL Network reporters confirmed it, and they phrased it as, and maybe based on how I phrased it, they phrased it as a, uh, a, uh, a, uh, a, uh, a uh, adverse side effect adverse reaction to the injection. And I purposefully didn't say the doctor's name, did not impugn him in, in everything that I've said, because I was trying to explain the process. And I even gone so far, and I know you can't compare football to lungs and whatever, 
But Tom Brady threw a pick six in week one. Doesn't make him a bad quarterback, right? And I'm not trying to protect that doctor. I don't really know him very well. I know who it is. He's not my personal friend. But to be fair, it is a known complication. Yes, it's not supposed to happen. But it is a known complication. The, the lung lining is very close to the nerve. And I actually wrote an article. Well, I'm going to interrupt. He's, that doc is trying to numb the nerve? Yes. Okay. So he's got broken ribs? Broken ribs or cartilage injury or rib, you know, cartilage separation, something. It turns out the reports have said now broken ribs. And to be fair, I think some fans say right there, why would you ever do that, right? I can tell you it is done routinely with informed consent. And when... Philip called and texted me yesterday. I asked him specifically, are you okay if I talk about how you've done this in the past? And he said, yes, which is why, yes, which is why I'm able to talk about it. Okay. Right. HIPAA. We've done that with Philip several times. As a matter of fact, yesterday I asked my assistant that helped me on the sidelines a lot. And I said, how many rib block injections, intercostal nerve injections, do you think that I've done across my 17 years? His number was 85. Mm. How did we get to that number? He says, he goes, you probably did it one to, to one or to three players a year, depending on the year. And each player probably needed it two to three times. So two times two to two and a half is five. You did it for 17 years, 85. This morning, I was talking to a friend of mine who moved out of San Diego, but for a couple of years helped me with the Chargers. And I gave him that number, and he goes, from what I saw, way more than that. But whatever. It's common. This is one of the things that we do with informed consent. You're not supposed to drop the lung, but it is a known complication. Knock on wood, I don't think I've ever did. I you, I never did. you use the little term there, drop the lung. Okay, so... Adam Shafter, who I respect the heck out of, used the absolutely correct medical term by saying punctured lung. But this is not taking a big old roofing nail and puncturing through the lung. The lung tissue itself is unfazed. It is a small, tiny needle poke hole in the lung lining only that causes an air leak and a, and a valve effect. So what's supposed to be negative pressure becomes positive pressure, not trying to be, but it is like a tiny hole, pinhole, not visible to the naked eye if you got down there. So the idea of punctured everyone, yeah. you know, but Adam was not incorrect. That was the correct medical terminology. But to the lay person, it sounds a lot worse, yeah. right? Andrew, I knew, look, I'm not a media professional, but I know very well if Monday I went with the headline of the ultimate friendly fire, Team Doc puts out his own quarterback with a punctured lung, that's a huge media story. But that's misrepresenting to me from what I know medically what the reality is. The good news is Tyrod Taylor will be 100% fine. The good news is 
if this were the playoffs or Super Bowl and whatever, he could play week three. But you know that doctors are always conservative. And that's one of the things I admire about Dr. McKenzie, right? Yes. You gotta stay conservative and not worry about the game itself. So when Coach Anthony Lynn said, if Tyrod's 100%, he's my starter, yeah. I wrote the article saying, Justin Herbert is your week three starter because I know he's not going to be 100%. Not only from the tiny air leak from the rib, but the rib fracture still isn't going to heal. And nobody thinks that Tyrod's going to take another rib block before the game. So there's no way he's 100%. And this is not tore at all. This is a numbing injection. And we do different types. And the article I wrote this morning for OutKick, I reminded people that Tyrod Taylor and Jerome Bettis have something in common. You remember that. 2001 playoff game, Jerome Bettis was supposed to play for the Steelers. Had a groin issue, warmed up, ready to go, felt a little something still, went to see the team doctor, got a little something, something in there. The numbing medicine leaked over to some nerves. His leg, his leg went numb temporarily. It comes back after the game, but he missed that game. And I'm not making fun of anybody. I'm not belittling. I'm just saying it's, this is why it's not that easy, this whole job. And to your final question, you know, lawsuits, this, that, the other. Look, anyone can sue anyone. Can they prove malpractice? I don't know. I wasn't there in the room. I mean, if he had informed consent and he did it correctly, I think it's harder to do so. If he didn't have informed consent and he did it haphazardly, I think it's a lot easier to prove so. But then there's the damages component, whatever. But I will point this out that, I mean, that Steelers doctor is still there today and a very well, good, well-respected doctor. So no one's banging on anybody. Um, I don't know how that's going to play out. I'm, I'm sure the doctor feels very bad about it. In my OutKick article this morning, the editor said to me, why didn't you put his name in there to, to be good with this article? We should put his name in there because we're, you know, reporting, you know. And I said, because I don't want him to get all this grief, right? I mean, like, and he goes, well, but, you know, but we need to do this. And, and then I finally said, look, there are multiple doctors in the room. I'm 99% sure it was the head team doctor that did it. I, as the head team doctor, did all the, the, these types of injections. But I don't have any evidence as fact that he did. That's another reason to leave his name out. And he said, okay, let's leave his name out. But I'm not trying to stir anything up. I'm just trying to explain the processes behind the scenes. So the, you don't, in your professional opinion, you don't see any negligence here? I don't know. With what you and, yeah. Because it's like asking an attorney, are you going to win the lawsuit? Or, well, let me read the contract. Let me see what happened, right? right? I don't know what happened. Now, I could paint you two scenarios. One where the doctor says, don't worry about it. I'll got you. I'll just numb this up. You're good to go. Lay down. Goom. Yes. There's something actionable and liable. Another, we talked about it all week and said, look, if you feel something, there's an option here. You can play with it hurt. Here's the risk of a punctured lung from the rib if you get hit again. We're going to have a flak jacket on you. This is what we do. It is close to the lung lining. These are the risks. It's about 1%, but I can't say that you can't get this. And then it's done properly and, right. you know, then I don't think it's necessarily uh, something that's, 
Well, anything can be actionable or right. would be considered no, being I, mean, so, I don't know. It's no how litigious. But again, then it's my world and damages and what's Tyron's damages and he's got a guaranteed contract and could it affect next year's mid? We'll see. But I, I think one thing we don't want to clarify for everyone, these doctors, unless things have changed since my day, you guys have not are not employees, correct? Correct. Independent and the, contractors. And the teams do that purposefully. Yes. And 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 in and for liability reasons, and also in many states, um, doctors can't be employees of non-doctors. Now, so and that's for public policy reasons, right? You don't want doctors making decisions monetarily or otherwise, and what have you. And and this leads us into another point. And I'm not trying to go along with your podcast or anything. Yeah. The number one question I always get asked is, how do you deal with coaches or owners or management forcing you to get a guy back mm-hmm. to play, right? That's the number one question. Yes. And I said, look, I never had that happen with the San Diego Chargers. There's no question there's intrinsic pressure to get people back. But no one ever said to me, Doc, you got to get this guy back on the field. We don't care. You just got to clear him or get him back. It was always the player themselves that said, Doc, come on, get me back, get me back. Let's do it. Let's push it. Let's push what's going on. And one thing you might appreciate from your front office GM type positions. I had a conversation with a GM once, and I won't say who, because he told me, look, you got to get this guy healthy because we need to cut him. Right. And I said, coach, let me make you a deal. And, and this goes into how I started. A lot of these guys are my friends. And even if I can stay objective, I mean, you're telling me that is going to cloud my judgment, maybe to not clear him, right? And so I said, look, I know my job. If it's LT and he's the best player on our team, my job is to get him healthy. If he's the 53rd guy on the team and we need to make a roster move, my job is to get him healthy. So don't tell me that you're about to cut a guy or make a roster move or whatever. Let me just do what I'm doing. And that's what we agreed to do, that I know my job is to get everyone back. And that's it. And leave it be. Yeah. And I had to deal with that because McKenzie was so player friendly that I tried <laughs> to get guys out of there and I'd give him an injury settlement. You know, let's do two weeks. And he'd go. Well, Doc McKenzie said it's going to be like five weeks. I'm like, oh, okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> he was good not thing. on the team side in those good, things. Good thing you ran with him. You know, but, you know, the, I look at it this way, though. In the small picture, that's a problem for a team. But in the big picture, it's a huge benefit because yeah. everyone in the locker room talks. Yeah. And, right? And then yeah. and that's one of the worries I have now about the changing world. And Dr. McKenzie's a dying breed. He's not there. There's no sponsorship attached to Dr. McKenzie. Right. I you know? know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not saying doctors are bad nowadays. Not that. It's just, it's the perception that there's the alignment between the doctor and the sponsoring institution. Yeah. Right. And whether it's real or not, I mean, over time, and I experienced it too, even though we didn't have a spot. You know, my last few years on the team, we had the local university as a sponsor, yet we didn't have any of the university doctors on our squad. So, uh, you know, um, it's an interesting world that we're in, uh, in terms of all of that. Back to our conversation about Tyrod Taylor and other issues with Dr. David Chow. First, a word from our sponsor, It's DraftKings. As you know, week two 
is in the books. It's time to review the tape, get ready for week three. No better place to do that than with DraftKings Sportsbook. They're America's top-rated sportsbook app. If you haven't tried it already, head to the App Store now because you don't want to miss this. DraftKings is safe, reliable, secure. It makes it easy for you to deposit, withdraw money at your convenience. Obviously, football is the thing. If that's not for you, DraftKings has all the MMA actions and the same great offer this weekend to use for this weekend's UFC 253. What is that offer? You place a bet on any team, $1. If your team wins, you cash a cool Benjamin, $100. So download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code ROSS, R-O-S-S, when you sign up. Get this can't-miss offer. Pick any team during week three, bet $1, and win $100 if they win. That's $1 to win $100 when you use promo code ROSS during sign-up. For a limited time, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. Okay, I want to transition to this year, and I want you to answer my query in okay. your professional opinion. And I'm, I'm going to push back against the narrative, and I may be completely wrong. The narrative is, because of this COVID offseason, because of no preseason, we had this rash of injuries in the first couple of weeks of the season. My pushback is I'm not sure we have a rash of injuries that's different than normal years. What we have is a rash of high profile, big name, like Saquon Barkley and Nick Bosa. That's, and McCaffrey out for a while. That's the difference. You tell me, am I wrong or are we seeing – for even beyond the high profile, we're seeing a bigger rash of injuries this year than in past years. I'm not trying to be a politician and give both answers, but let me say, explain something here. What you say is absolutely partially correct. There were seven ACLs in week two. Wow. Everyone can name Saquon Barkley and Nick Bosa. How many other people, and poor Bruce Irvin doesn't get talked about, and trust me, no one is saying, no offense, Marquise Blair, Tavon Young. Maybe a couple people have said Solomon Thomas, okay? But you're right. It's Nick Bosa and Saquon Barkley because right. it's star power type things. So from that perspective, you're absolutely correct. Also from the perspective that typically right now this season, according to some stats, I believe we have 19 league-wide ACL tears this year. And we're just using ACL tears as an example of injuries. The last five seasons, the average for the start by the start of week one is 25. We're at 19 total for the season. Hmm. So does that mean we're healthier? Not quite. I'll get to that. So even though we had seven ACLs in week one, we didn't see that. Sorry, in week two, we didn't see that in week one, right? I think there was one in week one, Zach Banner, okay? So we have eight, okay, in through two weeks. Now, what I believe has happened is we have less ACLs now because we have had less ski runs down the mountain, less opportunity for injury because training camp wasn't longer it was way shorter because the first three weeks you weren't doing a whole lot. Right. There's no preseason games, 14 padded practices. So there was fewer, 
you only had a half day lift pass instead of a full day, right? Yeah. So there was less. Now, is seven a spike? Yes. If, it, if we get another seven, it's, oh, my gosh. But typically in the preseason, the injury rate for ACLs is about two times higher. And in the regular season, the injury rate for ACLs is averages a little under two per week. Mm. And we got seven or four in the first two weeks. So is it more or is it a shifting of those preseason acclimation injuries that we would have gotten the preseason that may have been spent on lesser known players now shifted into the regular season where there's more attention and to Saquon Barkley and Nick Bosa. So long-winded answer, but somewhere in between. What you say has merit, but I wouldn't conclude scientifically that absolutely that's just because of the name players. Yeah, thanks for that. That really clears it up. And I want to push back on your word acclimation injuries there because we didn't have the ramp up, as you said. But when I think of acclimation injuries and what I dealt with at the Packers as soon as we got back in camp, were the soft tissue, the calves, yeah. yeah, hamstrings and the calves. Now we're talking about the ACL. Now, isn't that doesn't seem to be an acclimation injury? Would that happen because of lack of reps? Well, I, I mean, think it, it's different. I know. Uh, well, well, technically, an ACL or an Achilles is a soft tissue injury, right? Okay. It's a tendinous injury, ligament injury. It's soft tissue. It's not bone. And I do believe there's something is with the acclimation, and it's not necessarily the ACL itself, but we know muscles can be protective to the ACL. So if your muscles aren't firing right because of acclimation, it may not be directly an acclimation injury, but indirectly it may be an acclimation injury. So this is why we see a little bit higher rate. But the other thing to tell your listeners is, look, Saquon Barkley is a beast, but his ACL, as players get bigger, faster, and stronger, yeah. your ACL doesn't really get any bigger. His ACL is really probably not any bigger than mine, huh. you know, but he's putting a lot more force across it. So that's where we see some of that too. Well, that does, let me ask this question. Is, is someone like Barkley with all that torque, with all that bulk around it, is that an ACL waiting to happen? Well, you could argue that it's protective because muscles around it protect okay. and dampen. But if it's a mistimed muscle firing where it's a surprise off-balance step, remember he was engaged up top and struggling to get away and being right. pushed off-balance, that's where it's at risk. And maybe that's where some of the acclimation comes in. And statistically, I almost don't want to say this because I don't want to jinx the guy. But statistically, after the good news is after your ACL is fixed and recovered, he has a good chance of returning to be the same. And the good news is he has less of a chance to re-tear the same knee ACL than to tear the other side. Hmm. But the bad news is the flip side of what I just said. Because of genetics and otherwise – and his exposure, we know that someone who tears one knee ACL is more likely to tear their other knee than someone else who's never had an ACL tear. 
I got to get your opinion on turf. Okay. All kinds of questions about, especially New Jersey. Uh, you know, the 49ers played on that turf last week, and they're playing on that turf this week. <laughs> Jets last week, and now they come back, and it looks like obviously no Boza, looks like no Garoppolo, no no running backs. They're missing receivers. They're missing <laughs> Richard Sherman. This poor team. And I don't. And I don't see George Kittle playing. George Kittle. So. I don't even know, and I should, what goes into turf management in terms from a medical point of view? Has that turf and all turfs been approved, if you will, by some kind of, uh, is it the NFLPA? Is it docs? It, all turf that's installed in the NFL is approved and inspected afterwards. And that MetLife Field turf has. And even today, they said there was another special check and it passed mustard. And the thing about that, as you bring up, they play there again. The irony is the league didn't stick it to the West Coast team. The 49ers requested this scheduling so that they didn't have to travel all across the country. It's an accident that the Jets and Giants were both road games and they requested that they make it back-to-back. The league granted them the favor so they could stay on the East Coast. That's part of the irony of this whole yeah. thing. No, they're and, in Greenbrier where I vacationed this summer. They're, I know exactly where they are this week, yeah. Yeah, and so in week one, the Steelers played there, and there were no complaints. Okay. However, Zach Banner, right tackle, did yeah. tear his ACL on that field, okay? And it was the only one across the league. So – Draw your conclusions. Look, field surface turf interface, we know that the new all of the new sport grasses and field turfs are way better than the old school AstroTurf. But we also still know grass is still better than any sport yeah. turf or field grass. And think of it this way. I'm really not that big of a skier, but I don't know why I'm on to ski analogies here. But if you're a beginner skier, you set your bindings loose so you don't hurt yourself. So the ski doesn't catch in your foot. That's like footing. The, the, the less the footing, the less your foot sticks, the less likely you are to tear your ACL. When you're an expert skier, you crank it down tight because you're doing the double black moguls and the ski doesn't come off and it's now your foot sticks. And so there is a simple solution to not tearing your ACL either outlaw cleats or wet down every field and, you know, your foot doesn't stick. But, that you know, players, as you know, want that traction to be able to cut and make the moves. So it's a delicate balance. I would imagine the 49ers, anyone that's still not comfortable with the field, will be changing their shoes this week because that's the other way to affect the stickiness and the grip. And the most dangerous thing for a field is not how – slick it is or sticky it is per se is how consistent it is the most dangerous thing is when you have a pothole when you have like that hall of fame game parts of it fine but then all of a sudden your foot sticks to the paint right and you don't know what to expect we've had that for a long time not anymore now with the oakland coliseum early season with the dirt but at least it wasn't the dirt wasn't sticky. It was more slippery. So you might get a hamstring strain, but you weren't going to tear your ACL because you're up running. You don't see where you're going and your foot sticks. No, your foot foot slides. So that actually makes it pseudo safer. 
not more dangerous. But consistency is the biggest problem with fields. So stickiness of turf, you know, players, I'm sure, talk about this, right? Oh, yeah. Med life is sticky. This field's great. You know, we always got high marks in Green Bay. I remember our players talking about Carolina was coming up in clumps one year. Yeah, yeah, and, 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 and you know, you're literally like like a golfer talking about the grass, right? I mean, but, yeah. but one thing that may have played into this, I don't know. This is just speculation. Because of COVID, West Coast teams used to always travel on Friday. And yeah. Saturday would be a walkthrough at the stadium. And yeah. that would be the time to check out cleats and shoes and where's the play clock and where's the scoreboard and the video board, that, you know, things, you know, just logistics, right? And because of COVID, travel shortened. They didn't get in on Friday. There was some planning, so they got on Saturday. Now, of course, there's still pregame that you can check out the turf, but that's not the routine and, and uh, who knows. But that's kind of – I don't know how much that played into it for the 49ers, but that yeah. is a potential factor. And I want to leave on the topic that is the topic of the year because you just mentioned it. You're an orthopedist. I get it. But this COVID thing is – I mean, count me wrong. I, I said all off season, like, are we really doing this? Are we really? And Ross Tucker podcast many times, like, are we really doing this? Like, the essence of playing football is the opposite of social distancing, and we're going to have these mass infections, and it's going to shut down, and it still may. But count me wrong. This is happening, and we've seen bubble sports obviously working. The NFL is not a bubble sport. Okay. How surprised are you and and how impressed are you? And more importantly, can this last? Back in March, I was saying that I was confident that the NFL would start and start on time. I was way more confident that the NFL would start on time than finish. So the first part we got, the second part, fingers crossed. Why? The NFL's very lucky. There's no other sport that had better market timing, right? So you had the long run-up to prepare, and they did a good job. And so far right now, they're pitching maybe not a no-hitter, but a shutout, right? And the travel, travel already is basically social distance, except for seeing family and friends on the road. And they cut that part out. So, you know, a few little changes, and it pretty much is social distance. But the other thing that people... It's a hard topic to understand, but I've written an article outkick called outkick called viral load, and I can retweet that. So viral load is one coronavirus does not give you COVID. It's hundreds or thousands give you COVID over a period of time. It's not, and I'm not saying COVID's not real and that I'm not comparing it to getting sunburn, but think about one ray of the sun does not get you sunburn. If you park your car, you're down at the beach or the bay or wherever you are, and you walk two blocks to the beach, then put up your umbrella and put on your sunscreen, you're not going to get sunburn. But if you put on sunscreen, that's like putting on a mask. An N95 is SP100. Uh, a surgical mask is SPF30. A cloth mask is SPF 8, but it still does something. But you could put on a surgical mask or SPF 100 and still get sunburned. 
because if you're out in the sun long enough or it washes off or you miss a spot, you don't wear your mask correctly, whatever, you can still get it. And here's the other part of the analogy I'll give you. High noon, you're going to get sunburn a lot easier than 8 a.m. or 5 p.m. Now, if someone's infectious and coughing and active, that might be high noon or 1 p.m. If someone is asymptomatic carrier, you can still get it, but it might be 8 a.m. You, you still might get sunburn. And the final analogy I'll give you is testing. Testing is like seeing your friend turn red and say, uh-oh, did I put sunscreen on my shoulders? It's a little late. That's the whole contact tracing thing. If for teams, and this is what baseball realized, and this is what I was pointing out, that you to say, oh, we contact traced and we found five guys and now we isolated them, it's too late. What you The whole point is someone tested positive, we contact traced, and we found nobody. That's the goal. And it's within six feet for 15 minutes. It's So Sunday on the field is less dangerous than Sunday on the bus ride over or in the locker room or on the sideline. The six days of the week in the facility are more dangerous than any Sunday. The time away from the facility when no one is tested is more dangerous than any other time. But the one key that I think made this work, and let me run this idea by you and see if you agree with me or not, because your brain is really good. I have cited that the NFLPA agreement to allow players who test positive for COVID in season to be put on NFI was key. In my practice here, if any employee gets COVID, even if they're out at a bar doing whatever, that's considered a work comp injury by law and I have to pay them. The NFLPA is there to protect players. They're not there to take money out of their pockets. When they agreed to NFI is potentially taking money out of their pockets because you're not paid when you're on NFI and you can explain that better than me, as opposed to injured reserve from COVID. And the NFLPA agreed that if a player, a team could show a player was not social distancing away from the facility, they could make him NFI. What that told me was the vast majority of the players, the 80 or the 90% that wanted the season to go and finish, wanted to make sure that there were penalties for the others that may not be listening. And I think that was seminal moment. And not to mention, which I said all along, because of the tie of the salary cap to revenue, if there was no football this season, the players and the owners were aligned. If there was no football this season, boy, there'd be long-term repercussions for years. And you could discuss that better than I could. So those are all the reasons I was optimistic. It may be because I'm a football fan. And so I have blinders on too, but that's why I was optimistic all along. Yeah, I think that's well said. I mean, I think talking to executives like I've had, I had Jason Wright, the head of the Washington football team on the podcast and others, they basically said, we are bubbling. It's a bubble. It's a two-part bubble. It's facility and home. You can well, be told not to go anywhere else. That's it. And, and, here's, and here's the other thing that I would say about that. To do the Orlando bubble or the two Canadian bubbles yep. would be impossible for the NFL for this simple oh, reason. Yeah. I'll tell you why. Not size of the league or anything else. 
the NHL and the NBA were having their players do it for about six weeks. Yeah. I think the if you ask me to go into a bubble for six weeks and not see your family or move your family into the bubble for six weeks, for a job, maybe I'd do it. But for six months of the NFL with the season playoffs and the preseason, you would have had the whole league opting out. There was no way to do a true bubble, right? Yeah. No one would have, everyone would have opted out of that because of, you have a life to live, to lead. Yeah. I mean, we're fingers crossed, like you said, and uh, kudos to the union, to the players. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is happening much to my pleasant surprise. And again, we're week two, got to stay vigilant. Yes. hundred uh, percent. Yes. hundred um, percent. I'm going to let you go, but I wanted to sort of give you a last uh floor is yours. We talked about Tyrod Taylor, this rash of injuries. Any other thing that's caught your eye this year, and I know we're early, about NFL injuries, about injuries in the bubble in the NBA or NHL or anything? (laughs) Well, I I feel bad that I feel like I've talked too much. You said 30 minutes, I'm an hour. And so I feel like that's boring everybody. I'm happy to come back on and whatever. You know, uh, one thing is we talk and meet, you know, you probably figured out that it's hard to shut me up once you get me going. And uh, I, I'm happy. There's lots of other things always to talk about and these implications. And I love talking to you about it and picking your brain. And like I said, I look at it that I've actually tried to follow a little bit in your footsteps and, and what you've done as an X, right? I mean, yeah. uh uh, kind of thing, and uh, it makes it fun to uh, to have these discussions. Well, when you get a lawyer and a doctor together, the time <laughs> there's so many jokes people are making right now. <laughs> a lawyer and a doc, but I, I I just sort of it echoes how medical and legal really are so intertwined in sports. People think sports is just about the games. There's so much behind the scenes. And yeah, I appreciate what you're doing. What I wanted to do with kind of this third chapter of my career is sort of give back. And I'm not a doctor, I'm not curing cancer, but I'm giving back knowledge, insights, practical experience through media and through academia. And it's been great. And I appreciate you doing the same with your background. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. All right, Dr. David Chow. You'll be a repeat guest. This was just part one. We'll have you back. (laughs) Thanks for being with us on the podcast. All right. Thank you.